Okay, so <coughs> um, today I would like to talk about the second jhana and uh, weave into that, uh, as usual, some things that apply much more generally to maybe any jhana or jhana practice in general. <coughs> so as I said at the beginning, uh, the teachings will progress, if you like, through the retreat at the pace that they do, dependent on a lot of factors, uh, partly my medical appointments and things like that. Um, <coughs> and it's highly unlikely that, uh, in fact, it's totally undesirable if, you're, if your practice progresses at the same rate. So you, at some point, you're going to coincide, and uh, you may have already done that, or maybe later, but uh, what we're really interested in is your pace. That's really, really important. What's your playground? What's your pace? When is it uh, a maturing or transition time, etc.? So, let me read again. As uh, I read very, uh, rushed through when I first read them, the. Buddha's description of the second jhana, of which again there's two. There's a simile and there's a sort of more technical sounding one. Um. Okay, so. Again, uh, a practitioner with the subsiding of, listen to these interesting translations, with the subsiding of thinking and pondering. Again, there's that vitaka vichara, how different this translation from the usual uh, or more common these days initial and sustained application. That's really the vitaka vicharanam vupasana in Pali. So it's like, this is a fine translation, with the subsiding of thinking and pondering by gaining inner tranquility and unity of mind, reaches and remains uh, in the second jhana, which is free from thinking and pondering, born of concentration and filled with delight and happiness. So again, filled with piti and sukha, actually. So this person's translating piti as delight. Actually, I think they've even done it earlier. It doesn't matter. It's with the subsiding of vitaka vichara, by gaining inner tranquility and unity of mind, reaches and remains in the second jhana, which is characterized by its free from thinking and pondering, free from vitaka and vichara, um, born of concentration and filled with piti and sukha. Uh, I will read the more another translation just so you get a sense of. Um, so he's described the, the practitioner going through the first jhana and then said, uh, furthermore, or more than that, with the stilling of directed thought and evaluation. Again, so here's a quite a different translation of vitaka and vichara. With the stilling of vitaka and vichara, of directed thought and evaluation, however we're going to translate vitaka and vichara, she enters and remains in the second jhana. Rapture 
and pleasure, piti and sukha. So again, let's just go with these words, piti and sukha. I'm going to translate sukha as happiness, and I'll come back to that. Piti and sukha, born of composure. That's interesting. The actual Pali word is samadhi, so which the first person has translated as concentration, and this person has translated as composure. As I said, I would translate samadhi as quite a, um, a, a broad term. It's unification, it's harmonization, it's the agreement of the elements of being, right? But different. Um, born of samadhi, a unification of awareness, free from directed thought and evaluation, free of vitaka and vichara, internal assurance. She permeates and pervades, suffuses and fills this very body with the rapture, sorry, with the piti and sukha, born of composure, born of samadhi. There is nothing of her entire body unpervaded by piti and sukha, born of samadhi. So there's a few other elements in, in, in here that we need to... So basically, the vitaka and vichara fade, and born of the samadhi, uh, is piti and sukha, which is then spread. That's all we've got as a description. A couple of other things, that it's born of samadhi. So it's born of samadhi is distinguishing it from the first jhana, where the Buddha said is born from withdrawal from the hindrances, or seclusion from the hindrances. So this is uh, born of, of samadhi. And r remember how, how rich that term samadhi is, how wide, for me at least, um, hopefully for you. Uh, what's this unification of awareness? Uh, the Pali is cittasso ek, uh, bhavam. The citta, cittasso, the citta, uh, unified or raised to, to oneness. It's, it's, it's unified. Uh, and then this word at the end we'll come back to later. Ajatam sampasadanam. Internal assurance, this person has. Sometimes you hear the word confidence, internal confidence. Uh, so we'll come back to that actually later. So experience, that's what we have from the suttas. And then we have two, well, we have a, a gorgeous simile. I find it, I find it gorgeous. Um, just as a lake fed by a spring with no inflow from east, west, north, or south, where the rain god sends moderate showers from time to time, the water welling up from below, mingling with cool water, would suffuse, fill, and irradiate that cool water so that no part of the pool was untouched by it. So with this piti and sukha born of samadhi, the practitioner so suffuses their body that no spot remains untouched. So remember, we're talking about a very hot climate where that kind of image is going to be super, super appealing, unlike um, Devon in <laughs> December. Um, so to me, that's a lovely, lovely image. Um, and I feel very much as you get it more into the jhanas, some of these similes that the they actually seem more accurate than the more technical-sounding descriptions, which are, are open to all kinds of um, sort of ambiguities over translations and terms and what they might have meant at one historical period and then another. But just to me, there's something much more accurate about the poetic translation than there is about the 
about the, what sounds more technical and the kind of descriptions and languages and there are these five factors and there are these three factors and we tend to think, oh, that must be the, r the really accurate one. But you'll s see how you do with it. See what, you're, what you gravitate towards, what opens, what you learn as time goes on. So this is the descriptions we have. They're pretty brief. Um, Again, as I think I mentioned, was it yesterday that or another time, when, when a, a new territory, when the mind opens into a new, a new realm, a new territory, a new level, it tends to experience that level as effortless at first. It's just, whoa, we're suddenly not in Kansas anymore. We're suddenly, what is this? And, and you're just going along with the ride, it feels like, and it's effortless and wonderful. There's always exceptions always exceptions, but um, it tends to be that that's the case. Then, at times, after that, after those first few uh, experiences where it's all just uh, effortlessly kind of happening and you're almost just a, a bewitched witness uh, of the whole experience, um, then it might be that at times the relationship with the second jhana matures. And so that at times, we're actually practicing, we're conscious of, uh, it's not effortless anymore, I need to actually practice tuning to this frequency of happiness, which at times may be super obvious and kind of blow your socks off, remarkable, like wow, and other times much more subtle and maybe not so remarkable. I need to practice tuning to that and steadying my attention on what is essentially a more refined object. The sukha is more refined than the piti. Um, so, as I, as I mentioned, the jhanas are not primarily a spectrum of stronger and stronger concentration. The eighth jhana is invariably a state of uh, more unmovability, immovability of mind than um, the fourth jhana or or the, the seventh jhana, or whatever. It's not. That's not necessarily the case. That's not the the, the the primary thing that's changing. It might be happen that time, but it might just happen completely uh, otherwise at different times. But rather, the jhanas are primarily a spectrum of. In increasing refinement, let's say, increasing refinement. I mean where there's a bit of ambiguity between the words subtlety and refinement. So let's choose the word refinement for the way that this cloth is a lot more coarse and less refined than this cloth. Yeah. So the texture of it is much more refined. They're primarily a spectrum of um of deeper and uh, of more and more refinement. They get more and more refined. Um, technically, and we'll come back to this, there's a reason for that. It's because they're also a spectrum of less and less fabrication. On the spectrum of the fabrication of perception, if you've never heard that term before, I'll explain it in more detail later on. This is really, really central, and it's really, really important to understand, understand that in general, I would say, in terms of understanding uh, what the Dharma is, where we're going, what emptiness means, what dependent arising means, what liberation means. It's a key concept. 
the jhanas too map onto that very key central concept because the jhanas too in their spectrum of more and more refinement are also you could say places or areas on a spectrum of less and less fabrication and actually it's like this coarse cloth has uh, almost like more material to it it's thicker and denser and this fine cloth is has got less material to it it's 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 uh it's thinner and uh, more f more there's more filaments you know so we're actually fabricating less as we go deeper and deeper into jhanas. We may or may not be aware of that, but to become conscious of it and to understand it and understand its implications is huge, is massive. And in a way, I would say we don't really understand what the jhanas are, really understand how they relate to insight practice or how they integrate into the whole practice. And we don't really understand what we're doing when we're practicing concentration. Uh, we don't really understand that until we understand this. And it's, it's relation to the whole, the whole notion of the fabrication of perception. One fabricates more or less at different times. How? How does that happen and what happens when we fabricate more or less? We will come back to that. However, having said all that, in the second jhana, we've just got born of samadhi. So there is, I think it's true to say that um, usually a state of second jhana is an improvement of concentration on the first jhana, usually. Um, but that samadhi, again, it's a wider word, unification, um, harmonization, etc. Uh, a wider word than it usually gets translated as just concentration, I would say. So, it may be that a practitioner is still at this point staying with their breath. The breath is the primary object and the PT has come up and they're really um, mixing that with the, the breath and getting into that and then the happiness comes up. And one can, if one wants, stay with the breath. Or the metta might be the base practice. And one can, if one wants, stay with the metta. Um, but what happens is, or what should happen, is they get mixed. It, it must feel at some point that I'm breathing happiness or the breath has become happiness or the metta has become happiness. I'm radiating out sukha and happiness or the body has become happiness. The Buddha says no, spot of the, uh, no part of the body left unpervaded by this uh, sukha and piti. Now, the so you have you have the option of uh, what I meant by saying what I just said. You have the option of keep keeping with the breath if that's your base practice and you want to, and that's what helps, or keeping with the metta. But it, it should integrate those primary, uh, those base practice, the sense of the base practice objects, the metta or the breath, should completely integrate with the happiness. Like I said, they just become happiness. Um, or you can, like described with the first jhana, you can make the happiness the primary object and, and what you're primarily paying attention to. And then the breath or the metta may support that a little bit or it's just gone. You're really not concerned with it. And you have a bodily, we'll come back to this, a body sense of happiness, an emotional sense of happiness, and that's what you're concentrating on. Uh, 
if I think I threw this out already, if we were just all to take a sort of school school trip to Newton Abbott and each one of us were to stop someone on the street and say, think of something that makes you happy and then can you concentrate on that happiness? I doubt, I think p most people would just be baffled and it would feel impossible or very, very difficult. So for most of us, it's actually happiness as an object to focus on and to steady the mind to and to tune to is, is actually something we, we never do and we wouldn't know how to do and we wouldn't be able to do. So we're training that. We have to train that. Um, we're not, as I said, concentrating so much on a spatial point. We're concentrating, if you like, on that frequency or that bandwidth of frequencies, which is happiness. Yeah, That's really what we're doing. Within that, or within our intention to do that and our playing with that, there may be times when the attention is really steady and really focusing on a spatial point. But that spatial point is happiness, or it's the center of the happiness. So again, what we're really doing is focusing on the happiness, and, and that's central, um, rather than thinking of concentration as a focus on a spatial point. It may be at times that that's what's helpful, and at other times that's not what's helpful. We let go of the sense of a spatial point being so important. And it's the it's the frequency, okay. So this word sukha, S-U-K-K-H-A in Pali, it's an emotional quality, the emotion of happiness. And again, I mean that word in quite a broad way. So it's in technically in in, in Buddhist psychology, it's, it's a chitta quality. It's a it's a quality of the heart and mind. However, it's also physical, and this we really want to. Uh, really want to emphasize. You feel it as much in the body and you need to feel it in the body. This is what this is why partly the person in Newton Abbott, uh, or wherever we're going, won't be able to do it. Because it's just an extremely ephem ephemeral, extremely wispy mental quality. They can't locate it in their body. So feeling it in the body, pervading the body with it, is exactly partly what enables us to really get into it and really uh, stabilize with it. So when I say in the body, I mean in in the energy body, in the whole space, in the vibration tone. It becomes happiness. The vibration tone of the energy body space becomes happiness. So at the beginning, at first when you open to this level, either the second jhana or just the emergence of the sukha, um, identifying it as an emotion is, for most people, actually quite a crucial distinction to make. Ah, the PT is a primarily physical quality. The emotion is, uh, sorry, the sukha is, a, is an emotion. And just making that distinction, although because of what I just said, it's actually not quite true. They're both energy body vibrations. They're different energy body vibrations. But it will really help you make the distinction, get a sense of the different playgrounds, get a sense of the territory, and actually build the whole thing if if you recognize it and feel it as an emotional quality as well. That's what's going to really start to distinguish it from the PT. So, so that identifying it as an emotion, emotional quality versus a primarily physical quality, which the PT, we could regard the PT as, and the PT isn't, I, isn't just that either. So again, it's, it's not this black and white, but sometimes making things black and white is actually really helpful at a certain stage to, to make things clearer. 
Is it the ultimate truth? Definitely not. But it, it just making that division at first uh, is really helpful. It, it will help to draw it out of the mix, to draw out that emotional quality of sukkha from the mix. Ah, this is the emotion. That's the ah, that's what I'm paying attention to at first. And to, dist- and to begin to distinguish, this is PT, this is sukkha. Aha. And you really need to taste it, which really means feel it in the body, and feel the different qualities and enjoy them several, you know, quite a few times, uh, perhaps, to really uh, get used to this. At first, it might be very, very obvious. If the second jhana just explodes out of the first, it's very obvious. I mean, a completely different territory now. But again, as time goes on, then it might be like, oh, hold on a minute, where's the, where's the, ba- where's the division here? Um, so this distinguishing, this, this making discernment is actually really, as again, what we're talking about when I emphasize sensitivity, attunement, discernment, it's all, it's all really key. Um, not just to jhana practice, what we said right at the beginning, to your, the quality of your uh, relationship with your own emotions and your wisdom with your own emotions, your sensitivity to all kinds of things in life, your capacity in relationship, the skill you can work with in emptiness practice, in soul-making practice, in Brahma-Vihara practice. That's why we emphasized it. I would say um, that, uh, or rather a lot of people say, and I agree with them, that as the Buddha says, piti and sukha are both present in the first jhana, and they're both present in the second jhana. But what's characteristic of the first jhana is that the piti is to the fore. We, we're kind of entranced by that more, and you c- maybe there's more of it in the mix. And then in the second jhana, that flips, and the sukha becomes pr- prominent over the piti. The piti is still there, but the sukha becomes prominent. And the sukha is our primary nimitta, whereas in the first jhana, the, the, uh, the piti was the primary nimitta. So Karen asked me, "Is that uh, that's not in the Pali Canon?" No, I've never seen it in the Pali Canon. I mean, it might be somewhere. I don't. I very much doubt it, but uh, I don't think so. Maybe it's in a commentary somewhere. I'm not sure. So when I say that, I'm speaking from the teachers that I have really trusted and who have taught me jhana practice, or who, from whom I've learned jhana practice, and from my own experience. And it's just that, that that's pretty clear. Um, is it in the Pali Canon? Don't, don't think so. We get these very brief descriptions. As we go into the further jhanas, the, the descriptions are even briefer. So we have to somehow um, discern well and, and, and get, an, get a sense of what the territory is. Um, but as I said, I think I've already said it twice, and I'll say it once more. The nis- back to this distinguishing between piti and sukkha, really making that distinction. Um, what can happen if we don't is this kind of stagnation. It's the discernment that takes us deeper. It's the sensitivity to tune that takes us deeper on the whole path, deeper on the jhana path in, in, a, in a full way. And again, you know, I know people, um, I know practitioners, sit a lot, etc., did sit a lot, put a lot of work in, and they reach a kind of place that's sort of around this area, and it's a kind of a mix, and they, they do not, uh, either they do not take the instruction or they do not bother to make the differentiation. And it's 20 years later, and they're still pretty much hovering around in the same kind of soup. 
um, you know, that might be completely fine with them, or they might want something different. But they're not going to they're not going to open up anywhere deeper unless they make the distinctions, the discriminations, the subtle discriminations. It's it's nice where they are, and they can sit for quite a while, etc. But it hasn't gone anywhere, and not much even new insight. Uh, so it doesn't just apply to the depth of, of samadhi practice, it applies to the insight practice as well. That all got stagnated as well. It's because I don't know why they didn't want to make the discernment. Maybe it was, I don't know. Why do people, it's a whole other question. Sometimes though they're mixed. The piti and the sukha are mixed and it's hard to tell at the beginning. So there will be, if you're new to the second journey, there will be times when I'm not quite sure. But generally speaking, we want to be clear. This is piti and this is sukha. And generally speaking, they do kind of separate like that. But there will be times when it's actually quite, quite hard to tell. What all that means is that part of the work and or play, depending on your favorite word there, um, part of the work and play at this stage is exactly that. That's part of your job. Can I really, can I really get used to what the differences are? Can I make the, the discriminations? Yeah, that's really part of the work. So how does the second jhana arise? Um, well, what color is an unripe mango? Is it green? What color is a ripe mango? Is it kind of yellow red? Yeah. Okay, but let's say it's more yellow red. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So one of my Ajahn Jeff used to say. Don't take a green, unripe mango and paint it yellow-red and, and then call that a ripe mango. Don't take your practice wherever it is and, um, and try and do some stuff and call that the second jhana. Don't take your first jhana and push it uh, or put pressure on it or just do, do something that you're kind of forcing a mango to ripen. So his, was his approach was very much on the, like these things will ripen in their own time. And if you do it that way, uh, rather than kind of jumping the gun or forcing anything or wanting to achieve something or having some kind of timetable, um, it will be much, much more fruitful. Again, generally speaking, there's all kinds of exceptions, and I'll come back to some of those exceptions. Um, so again, we, we talked about, remember when we talked about PT, we said generally speaking, you could say there's two ways that PT arise, arises. One is... I take, I take an object, maybe it's a point uh, in the abdomen or, or the breath it, or the nostrils if it's the breath, maybe I take the metta, whatever it is, and I just, I just work with that, work with that, work with that. I do not put up with the hindrances when they come. I really try and work with the hindrances and I have this background awareness and I, um, I play with this idea of more intense attention, less intense attention, delicacy of attention, it, subtilizing the attention. If I do all that, those, what's that, four things, um, then the way the PT tends to arise is sudden and eruptive and quite strong after, for most people, quite a while. So that's good. And then there's another way, which is taking the energy body experience from the beginning and actually just kind of tending to the little ember of well-being there, fanning it when it needs fanning, protecting it when it needs protection from the winds, etc. Building, building in a way, coaxing it to become more of a, a campfire, the, the PT. 
But that needs uh, work and play. Um, playing with the modes of attention, playing with kind of very uh, intense probing at times, or in intense attention, intense opening, radical opening, receiving, etc. So I have to I have to be intense. You know, I can't I can't at times at least I have to be intense um, with how I'm coaxing this ember. Sometimes my uh, let's say my intention and my attention and my my whole work and play has to be quite intense without putting pressure or a demand on it. So that's also also part of the whole deal. Um, when we get to the second jhana, this happiness, it might be the case, uh, as I said, that it it probably relies more on its uh, arising in a way that's helpful. It probably relies more on a really very gratifying relationship with the PT. The PT, one is really into it and really enjoying it. So if you're sort of, the PT's okay, and it's kind of, mm, it's okay, and then a bit like, like, maybe the second jhana would be better. That goes back to the, the foolish, inexperienced cow. Remember that? Um, so, I have to. Uh, what does this mean here? It, it means then that again, with m with the PT that's arisen, I have to work and play with that in these ways. I actually have to shape it. I'm, I need to uh, really take care of it and take care of my relationship to it. The sukkha of the second jhana will only arise when I do that. Okay. So if it uh, matures, if, if the sukkah of the second jhana matures organically like this mango, um, it emerges um, through working and playing with the piti, then it, um, and, and through the piti feeling really lovely, really pleasurable, really enjoyable, then the sukkah emerges in a much clearer way. It's like, whoa, this really is, okay, this really is something else now. Now this is really something quite extraordinary. Um, and this is clearly, what that suk what that word sukha means it's clearly the second jhana or whatever depending on where you end up after that to say in different words what I uh, said earlier after a few times of that then you might find yourself needing to um, in other words after quite a bit of experience with the second jhana then you might find yourself needing to go back and you can work with a much more subtle and unremarkable sukha and build it up the way we built up the ember of well-being into piti. So does this does this make sense what I'm saying? It's like if I if I've got a PT that's not that great, then my chances of getting getting taking a happiness that's yeah you know it's okay, uh, and building it into the second jhana are probably probably there's always exceptions and I'd be really interested if there are actually to hear back just for teaching purposes, um, but it's more likely that this, the the happiness that comes when the piti wasn't that remarkable and then the, and then the sukkah is not that remarkable, it will be hard to get that to feel really gratifying and like this is really something. Versus the piti that can arise uh, with, with patience and time from just working with the ember in the energy body can be. Does this make sense, the distinction? Not quite. Okay. With the piti, we can go two ways. I take an object, I stick with it, but I have to be careful how I'm sticking with it and be intense and watch it 
be, be subtle with the attention and the delicacy and all that. I can do that, or I can just take the ember of well-being in the energy body and build it and build it and build it. So basically, I can get either of two ways to a PT that's really nice. When you come to the second jhana, I, I'm just wondering whether the probability of coming to a sukha, which is characteristic of the second jhana, that's really nice, is it's not an equal probability. I, have to, I, have to, I can't start from a happiness that's not really that gratifying, especially if that was built on a piti that never got really that gratifying. It, uh, it, it's probably possible, but at first, it's unlikely. You know, at the PT, I have to get really into the PT. I have to really get that fine, really enjoy it, and then it, it's more likely to succeed. After a lot of a lot of experience with the sukha and the second jhana, then you can take a really quite unremarkable happiness, and you're already quite skilled, and it's already quite familiar, and and that can grow. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. I, I I'm sure I could have said that more elegantly. Good. Um, Okay, so <coughs> having said all that, sometimes what happens, sometimes what I encounter in teaching is someone whose first jhana is just great and they're even getting all the elements of mastery. So it's usually the case that as a person really starts to, uh, you know, uh, gain those elements of mastery through practice with the first jhana, that the second jhana is already kind of intruding, emerging, showing itself. That, that's usually the case. Occasionally, or sometimes, I don't know, I can't remember, I don't know what proportion of times, someone's first jhana, they're really enjoying it, they're really into it, and, and there is some of those elements of m m mastery, but the second jhana is not showing. Um, it's not emerging, etc. So sometimes uh, this, this is not how Ajahn Jeff would teach, is that you never paint that mango at all, uh, or you never force a ripening. I would say sometimes there's some, some things that you could do, little tricks you can play with. Um, so one is, here's the PT. I'm really used to it. I'm really into it. It's going great. Right now, it's going great. Okay, generally, I'm into it. I've practiced with it, etc. I've gotten used to all that, the, all the mastery, and, or a lot of the mastery. And then right now, it's going great in this sitting, walking, standing, whatever it is. And then when it's going great, I can just drop a question, like just a really light question. What is the emotion right now? What am I, what's the emotion I'm feeling right now? And the answer should be happiness. It should be sukha. So that's one possibility. A second possibility, again, here it is, um, going, going quite well. Um, Again, this is this is something that that it doesn't need to be going well. That it might, uh, after a while, after a lot of practice, it doesn't need to be going well for this one to work. But here, let's say at the beginning, when it's it's not quite happening, um, here I am, and I drop in the word, whichever word I prefer, uh, a whisper, a, a grain of uh, m magic, alchemical, chemical. Just drop it in, uh, a drop into the chitta, happiness or joy, or sukha, or whatever whatever word is uh, that you prefer. As I said, the mind goes deeper in samadhi, just becomes more and more uh, suggestive, and, and, and potently so. More and more uh, uh, sensitive the mind becomes, sensitive to suggestion, sensitive becomes more malleable in all kinds of ways. So that would be a second. Um, another funny thing you can try is, um, you've probably noticed that 
most often PT tends to flow upwards in the body. One, one feels a sort of upward current of it. And what you can try sometimes is just feel that upward current. Again, this is when you know, you're really used to it and it's great and you're enjoying it. But uh, and then the upward current, imagine it uh, shooting out the top of your head like a fountain, like a spout of a fountain. The water comes out the top of your head and then like a fountain, it falls back down. Just, just imagine that, see what happens. A fourth possibility, I'm not sure how much one might want to try this or how, how we'll see, but it, it, it may well be very useful for some people at some times. Um, again, here's the PT, it's going well, I'm into my practice right now. And just the memory, introduce, again, very, very subtle, just the memory of something uh, that makes you happy or, or a happiness. Just, to just like a little tincture, a little drop of tincture into the chitta, the memory of a happiness while the PT is there. And drop that in. So these are all little tricks. As I said, in a way, the, the, the safest gamble is to let something mature um, and just get really, really into the PT. Find that enjoyment, find that intensity of relationship with the PT, whether that's a... So don't confuse intensity with this kind of forward probing, narrowing. That's one form of intensity. Another form is how much, how intensely am I opening? But an intense, an intensely enjoyable relationship with the PT, and and it matures out of that in time. If not, or if you feel like, well, I'm kind, of, or if the teacher says, well, I'm kind, of, you know, maybe you want to try one of those tricks. You, if you're playing enough you will discover your own tricks at this point, at this threshold, at this um, border between the first and second jhana. You should discover your own tricks and come and share them with us. There's, there's all kinds of things are possible. Eventually, you won't need any tricks because you're going to be, uh, hopefully, you have mastery of the second jhana, which means you just have the subtle intention for the second jhana or for the sukha to arise. And it goes there. And all the tricks, it's like I can't even remember the tricks I've learned, I, I used to play with. This was all I could come up with because I, c I couldn't remember. So after a while, one just doesn't, doesn't need them. It's just, it's just from intention. But, but there is a, that point of learning new territory where you will be like, well, it's gone there before, now how, did I, how do I get it back? Or, or if it needs an, 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 a nudging. Yeah. Okay, so... Going back to something I mentioned earlier, there's this there's this phrase there uh, in Pali, it's vitaka uh, vichara nam vupasana, which means something like with the subsiding, with the allaying, with the uh, cessation, with the calming of vitaka and vichara. What thinking, thinking about I initial and sustained application that doesn't that begins to like not make much sense at this point. Um, so what is that? that? He refers to that as part that's characteristic here. Um, vichara, that word, also has a particular meaning sometimes. So it's used as a pair. Vitaka vichara just means thinking. Vichara has a particular meaning of kind of discursive thought. Uh, thinking, it's like, mm, what I mean by that is the mind getting hooked on a thought and following a thought. And one uh, so for for more than one moment. So this thought leads to that thought, or I'm following a train of thought. This is discursive thinking. 
So discursive in English comes from the Latin corere, which means to run, to, to move, to, to move fastly. The mind is in a certain, you, you understand, it's hooked and it's moved. Does that make sense? The mind is moved with a thought. Um, one thought follows another. Uh, so when we reason, uh, this, therefore, that, therefore, the next thing, that's also, uh, in English, that's also discursive thought. That's also one of the meanings of discursive thought. It's sort of consequential movement of thought. I would say that in, in if you're careful enough in your attention, and if you're sensitive enough in your attention, you will notice in the second jhana that it may be that thought arises at times. This chitta, this chitta which has infinite depth and subtlety, it may be that thought arises at times, but what there isn't in the second jhana is any, any being hooked to a thought. The mind is not then moved off on a thought. One thought does not lead to a second thought. This follows that, or I was thinking this, and then... So, and the, th the kind of thought that arises is probably very, very wispy, very, very subtle. It's not extended in time either. So there's a larger point here, I think, just about, uh, in addition to mapping out what actually is the range of experience of the second jhana, and there's a larger, perhaps even equally important point. What, what is it to have a thought? We use that word so much. Th I'm thinking, or there was thought, or there wasn't thought. I would say the whole uh, idea of thought uh, and the whole experience of thought has an enormous range to it. To the mind shouting something and completely lost in a tangle of shouting at itself or, wha or whatever it is, and very coarse thoughts, to extremely, extremely subtle, the kind of subtlety that most people wouldn't even notice, and we're not used to, e e we're not even aware that, oh, there might be this, this level there. So an invitation alongside all this to open up that investigation, to pay attention and notice, what do we mean when we say thought? And what does it mean uh, when the mind gets quiet? Is it completely quiet? Is it quiet at a certain level? What kind of thoughts have gone? What kind of relationship with thought has gone? So we're not, uh, what, what has gone is that the being hooked onto a thought or, or for more than, uh, you know, for more than, for being hooked onto a thought and one thought hooking us to the next, one thought being hooked to the next. That's gone and also gross thought has gone. So again, this is the sort of thing, it may take a while to notice this. And I really, mean again, this is also again why I keep an, Sorry to anyone who doesn't like this, but the why, why subtlety and sensitivity is such an important part for me, for me in the teaching. One begins to realize, oh, these things are not so black and white, and there's way more subtlety of, of range for most phenomena um, than we tend to realize at first. And we can develop our sensitivity and get aware of that range of subtlety. And that pays enormous dividends. So all this business about what is thought actually has huge implications for very, very deep insight. People talk about non-conceptual awareness and the mind was completely non-conceptual, etc. And so what's the difference between a conception and a thought? And does a conception have to be verbal? Does a thought have to be verbal? I'm, I need to notice all this 
for the really deep end of insight, when, when you're talking about really deep unfabricating, <coughs> or, or understandings of emptiness and the way certain words are used in texts and, and stuff like that, but we won't talk about that now. So like I said, it may take a while to notice this. Um, in a way, what happens with the, with the samadhi of the second jhana is partly what enables us, or should enable us to do, is, is to begin to notice this a little bit. But as I said, whenever it was, usually at first, a new, a new level, when the mind enters a new level, it's like a dam bursting, and the water is just gushing, and you're just going along for this water ride, um, and it just seems like there's no thought happening. Um, in time, it's like your eyes getting used to a darkened room. You say, oh, hold on a minute. There are some things here I didn't notice at first. But we're talking about something very, very subtle and whole, it's a whole different relationship, whole different level of thought. So you don't need to go, uh, well, let's see. Um, but this encouragement, I said, you know, do I, how wise would it be to use my perception of the presence or absence of thought as a kind of measurement of where I am in, in samadhi. And I keep kind of glancing there. Is, is it stopped thinking yet? Um, I don't think that would be very helpful or very wise at all. And given the, the A, the confusion of what vitaka and vichara means, and B, the subtlety of the range of what thinking might be, um, I, I can't see mu that much value. In it. You will notice something in relation to thought if you're, if you're really getting into this. So don't make that the primary criterion. Uh, so I would like to say, as I said before, each jhana has a primary nimitta, right? And the second jhana, the primary nimitta is sukha. That's the thing that we're really um, making primary and really getting into and we're really taking care of and we're really opening our relationship with, etc., and getting into. So there's a what's significant in practice, but there's a why is that the significant, why are we making that the significant thing in practice? There may be, I would be very surprised if there aren't, um, people out there with the idea that the most significant thing about the second jhana is the quieting, the stilling of thought. I don't know, M maybe there are. So again, we have to think, why do I choose this make this an emphasis over that. Of all the things I could emphasize in practice right now, of all the things I could make a priority, why this and not that? Or why that and not this? Remember we were talking about this, that how I think about samadhi and how I relate to samadhi in the present moment is related to my big view. Yes? Are you guys okay today? Yeah? Whether you're okay? Or, um, yes, yes, okay, good. <coughs> um, thank you. Um, so, we apply that here. Here's this bag of little factors. Which is the most significant one, and why? So, I, I'm going to choose the sukkah as the most significant one. Maybe there's someone who chooses the less thought as, as the less significant one. So I would say the quietening of thought um, is not the most significant or transformative uh, aspect or factor. It's actually an absence of a factor here, isn't it? It's the absence of two factors that were present in the first jhana. I would, not, I would say that's not the most transformative uh, 
factor or aspect of the second jhana. I would say happiness is. And it's, it's the happiness, it's the sukha, it's the range of happiness, it's the remarkability of that happiness, it's the, it's the, uh, the fact that it comes um, you know, pretty much independent of someone needing to praise me or some sense pleasure or something. These are the things that transform if and only if I really marinate in it and I really drink it lots and lots of times for a long time. Then that happiness is really, really going to make a difference in one's life. Huge difference. As a resource, we've talked about this before, tremendous resource. You know, some of us, just imagine, uh, you know, several hours a day just drinking that kind of happiness, that depth of happiness, that beauty of happiness. Even half an hour a day, whatever it is, it, or just n after a while just knowing it's there and that you can access it if you want to. The sense of what's possible this is also really transformed by the tasting of that happiness. One's ability to let go. So that's part of the function of a resource in Dharma. This lovely, lovely feeling means it doesn't so much matter how much money I have or this or that, if I get famous, if I get rich, if, I, if the food is nice where I'm staying or not nice or, or pleasant. Or it, it's, com it's completely relativized by that kind of experience. So one's ability to let go is made much more vast, much more steady, much more profound, much more far re wide-reaching because of the happiness. Uh, and it's a happiness, as I said, that's pretty much independent of what, what someone is giving me or, or sense pleasures, etc. Do you, do you understand? Do I don't know. It's massive. The difference only if we marinate for a long period of time with the happiness is what I'm drinking. I'm drinking, I'm drinking, I'm drinking. I'm drinking that. Slaking the thirst for what we're really looking for, chasing the sense pleasures or the praise or whatever it is. I'm going to leave soul-making dharma and sensing the soul completely out of this conversation for now because some of you know that that gets a lot more interesting when we and there's a lot more to say there, but I'm just leaving it out, leaving it out for now, not to complicate things. If, though, I decide to say or to take, oh, no, it's, it's the quietening of thought. That's the most significant thing about the second genre. My question would be, why? Why do you think that's... And, and how can you explain how that fits into and makes more sense in a bigger picture? Is it that you believe that um, when the mind is free of thought, it's seeing things as they really are, or revealing it's thought that is the problem, and this, the thought creates this kind of smokescreen in front of reality, or what is, or whatever language. Do you understand? So when I bring in text, like, how does it fit? What actually is most significant? And why, if I'm choosing to emphasize this, or if a person's choosing to emphasize that, why is that significant? And how is that significant, A, for jhana practice, B, for what it's going to deliver, and C, in the whole path? Okay, sometimes what happens, 
um, in practice is <coughs> that, um, and again, I don't know the, f- the figures of how common this is, but I've certainly encountered it quite a few times. So a person is in the first jhana, great, and then they just completely leapfrog the second jhana and end up in the third jhana. That's the next thing that just emerges by itself. So that's quite an interesting thing. Again, maybe we have to think back to where, where are we trying to go? And in this, in this way of setting up, where we want um, eventually to have mastery of the second jhana too. Um, then it would be a question of, okay, do we need to stop now and go back? Or should we let the third mature and really get into that and then go back? But it, it's possible. Um, but it may also skip <coughs> to, and um, we had this with, with, for example, Joel's question. Um, well, it wasn't exactly that question, but the possibility of it skipping or moving from the first jhana to a peacefulness that is not really um, akin to the third jhana. It's peaceful, it's relatively still, there's some equanimity there. It's certainly not unpleasant, um, but it's not really the third jhana. So, um, Again, partly depends on background practice, partly depends on one's psychological patterns. That for some people, there's a kind of resistance to a sort of intense happiness for whatever reasons or however that came to be as a sort of karmic uh, you know, formation um, or sankara. And so sometimes um, that needs a little unpacking or the relationship with happiness and sort of bubbly happiness needs, needs a little looking at. But eventually we want to tick, tick them all off uh, in terms of mastery. Uh, you know, we could say, we could say that um, each jhana kind of delivers, kind of delivers a its particular insight. We could say something like that, but um, more accurately, you could say each jhana delivers something particular in relation to the ability to let go. Um, and that's anyway what I would translate insight as. Insight is, has to be directly related with letting go. Insight is what allows letting go. So the first jhana, partly, by, you know, people are different, whatever, but it might just be the fact that, like, wow, a whole other realm is possible. I think I said this already. Um, other states, other states of consciousness, other, you know, dimensions are possible when the mind is not entangled. And just that knowledge, that first-hand intimate experience, and the, the way, the intensity with which it imp- impresses on consciousness is something completely uh, different than we have experienced before. That makes a big difference for a lot of people. (coughs) Not for everyone, but for a lot of people it will. Um, With the second jhana, uh, it's related to this this happiness and this, uh, I think. Um, There is this, uh, like I said, uh, in in the Buddha's very short description, there's just two words there, ajatam pasadanam. And it translates as something like internal confidence or internal assurance. Um, but I think I was talking with you about, with you about this last night. It's like it's actually to me uh, that the confidence could could mean three things: one of three things, or two or three of three things. It could mean right then in that moment, because of the stability of the chitta, it's born out of samadhi, and because of the stilling of thought and the sense of how integrated it is, it could be a confidence in the stability of the chitta then. 
and that uh, instead of having to like with the first jhana the soap mixer is is doing it quite active and the vitaka and the vichara and I'm thinking more and more it's just kind of uh more still and there's a kind of confidence from that um in in the stability like I'm confident that this is stable maybe um it could be uh, a confidence that has more to do with the discovery, uh, like I said, of such a profound and fulfilling happiness uh, that doesn't seem, uh, let's say, certainly not primarily dependent on external conditions. And just knowing that, tasting that, drinking from it, that's going to give one uh, quite a bit of confidence in one's life. Do, do you get that? Yeah, or it could be I don't I don't actually know what what it's referring to. It's just sort of there, ha- hanging in the, in a mid sentence. Um, it could be a confidence in the Dharma, and a confidence in one's self, in one's own ability to tread the path that the Buddha described. It's like one really has a, a sense. It's like wow, this is a, this here I am, two thousand five hundred years later, experiencing these uh, remarkable. Experiences that the Buddha described, and he's got them in a kind of spectrum. And then he describes this other stuff. And if I'm experiencing this, and and it has such an intimate sense of this really is what we're talking about, then one's confidence in in the I in the Dharma itself, and in one's ability to tread the path, uh, gets uh, you know quite a support there. So maybe I can do more. If I can do this, I can do more, and all the way to liberation. So the, the, I don't know which of those confidences it is, but confidence is part of the gift, and certainly the confidence of that resort. I, that's the one I would plumb to as the primary one, but plumb for as the primary one. But I think I think maybe they're all there, and certainly, I, actually, I remember if I remember back uh, the confidence it gave me in the path. And that in I was actually walking this path, and that it was possible. And what the Buddha was talking about was really. Uh, it makes such an impact, um, much more impact than, you know, just being mindful and being a little calmer or, or whatever it is, or seeing impermanence and saying, oh, the Buddha talked about, imp-, you know, it makes such an impact because of the beauty and the depth and the remarkability of the experience. It really gave me a lot of confidence in the path and that I was on the path and that I could do that because, look, I'm doing it. Feel it, um, but I think probably for me the most important one is the discovery of this kind of happiness that's, that we have access to, to this kind of happiness. It's open to us, and it's not dependent on external conditions. So I mentioned earlier that uh, probably when we were talking about the first jhana, that each jhana has a primary nimitta in our language and a secondary nimitta, right? And uh, I think I just gave one, I'm not sure how many examples I gave, of a secondary nimitta. In in the first jhana, the primary nimitta is piti. In the second jhana, the primary uh, nimitta is sukha. But um, in the first jhana, for example, or any jhana, you could have a secondary nimitta of, say, a bright white light in the mind, or a cloud of, of light, that sort of thing. You could also, for some people, it's aural. They, they hear a sound, or sounds, or whatever it is. Um, there can be dif- different ones. Those two are probably the, the most common. Um, but there's also a kind of uh, mm, other kinds of se- secondary nimitta, which are a little bit more, let's say, intrinsically important or valuable. 
And one of them is quite common at this stage, a second jhana, and then in a way even more, more, more differently so, let's say, in the third jhana, is that metta is there. So that sometimes people are not doing a metta practice, I'm just working on the breath and now it's open to the second jhana, actually feel, sometimes people have come to me and say, I think, I think the metta is the primary thing, not the happiness. Um, it's, it's not technically, it's, a, it's the second, uh, or rather it's a secondary nimitta, but it's very valuable. You know, you know. So automatically in a jhana, there is metta in it. It's, it's kind of impossible to be in a jhana and have uh, ill will or, or aversion and, and uh, the, ap- you know, the, the opposite of metta. So it's more again back to like, what will I become sensitive to? What can I pick up on? What's in the mix of frequencies here? And metta especially noticeable in different flavors in the second and third jhanas. So we can allow that. And sometimes you can focus more on that. You can lean your emphasis more into into the metta there. Um, to, to a little, you know, again, it's a dialer, like how much does it become completely primary? Does it become kind of 50-50? Does it become just in the background? Um, and there, there can be, for a lot of people, obviously a lot of healing, a lot of healing with, with the love that's there. And particularly when we talk about the third jhana, but, but a lot of healing. But we need to be clear, what's the primary nimitta? And that's, that's the sukha, that's the happiness. So that not leaning too much and too often and too long in, in, into the love over the stretch of our practice. Why would metta come up at that point? Why would metta reveal itself, do you think? What's that? Yeah, so while saying, because they're both um, unfabricated, so um, if I say that slightly differently, if that's okay, um, when we're in a jhana, we're not fabricating. So I'm introducing more this conversation about fabrication, this teaching about fabrication. When we're in a, in a jhana, and, and more and more so as we go down the jhanas, we're fabricating excuse me, less and less self and less and less of any kind of otherness, other person or whatever. So that the duality between self and other gets less. And there's more sense of non-separation, more oneness. There's less like, that's your space and this is my space, thank you very much, or whatever it is. Or less judging or less irritation. There's, there's just a tendency, self and other, less, both less fabricated, more non-separateness, more, less duality there, and less polarity and all that and all the difficulties. So in a way, um, that there's a kind of natural arising of metta because because of that because we're just we feel less separate. Afterwards, even the metta gets unfabricated. But we'll talk about that later. And that's when we get into equanimity and things. We'll talk about that later. So, um, if you're practicing in this territory, so when you're practicing and when this territory opens up for you. And it feels like, okay, now that's my playground and that's what I'm really exploring and you're really into it and you've, let's say, just spent a standing period in the second jhana or whatever it is. Um, and it's time to end because you have to go to uh, wash up or wh- whatever. Um, 
so you know it's coming up time to end, but it's still going well and there's still energy there, then you can spend a few minutes, if you want, you know, just a few minutes at the end of the session um, playing what I call two games, ping pong and leapfrog. Okay. Um, so, for example, here I am in the second jhana, and then I go, okay, well, let's go to uh, just a normal consciousness. I'm leapfrogging the first jhana, yeah? And then I go, maybe, okay, I'll go from there to one. And then I'll go from one back to two. And then I'll go from two back to one. And then I'll go to two again. Then I'm ping-ponging. One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. I actually need to practice that transition both ways. So this is a minor part of our practice, but one of the elements of mastery. Can I really just move back and forth at ease between a jhana and its adjacent, a, any jhana and its adjacent jhana? So if I'm practicing two, can I go to one? And, and I haven't got to three yet, then two to one to two to one to two. You just, it's all very light. It's all just a game. Yeah? Um, and then I can also practice leapfrog. And here there's not too many leapfrog options because we've only got zero, one, and two. So you can go two to zero to two. There's not much leapfrog options. But so you can just spend a few minutes of fun at the end of sitting playing ping pong and leapfrog. And these are the elements of mastery, and they, they're really, again, I would like to encourage this. It's not, I wouldn't spend a whole sitting doing this, but they're part of learning the territory, they're part of the discrimination, they're part of the mastery, they're part of what makes the mind uh, and the chitta really malleable uh, and, and all that. So again, if when we come to talking about mastery, etc., we have to think about pacing. When is it... Um, am I, is it not ripe yet to try this stuff? I'm just getting used to the second jhana, and it's like... Uh, it's too soon to try going for a walk in the second jhana when I'm just getting used to it. You know, I really need to be really, really familiar. And when I do try all that stuff, like the whole, like the whole practice and the whole tenor of the days here, we really want to encourage this kind of light playfulness. If I get too heavy and too tight and too pressured, it just squeezes, basically it squeezes the sukkah out of things and then there won't be that, um, there won't be the fruit. So the whole thing is, is very light when it's time to play. Okay, so I don't know. I don't know where things are at in the Dharma world these days. Um, I don't get out much. <laughs> it's actually true. But, um, but certainly, if I think back years ago... Um, I don't know, maybe it's, uh, this is a question for you. Who's heard from anyone? Oh, oh, careful with the jhanas. There's a danger you might get attached. Okay, so some years ago, this would have been everyone. It would have been the default. Like, don't, you know, you don't really want to be, A, what's the point? It's not insight. And B, you know, there's, a, there's really a danger there that you're going to get attached. And that's uh, really pretty serious. So, like I said, it's interesting. I'm not sure. Maybe two-fifths of the people. I don't know. Anyway, um, half, half of you put your hand up. So, um, if you go back to what the Buddha said, uh, what did he say about all this? Um, there is one, one, one occasion where I, I rem remember, and I'm sure that maybe I was one, where I remember him talking about... Um, a monk who then was very ill and because of the low energy was not able to access whatever level of jhana he was able before his illness or when he was well. And this monk was, um, I don't know, 
having some dukkha about that. And the Buddha said, it's anatta, it's anatta. You see it as anatta, both the jhana and the self. So don't, it's not self. So there's a kind of that kind of attachment. Um, but what the Buddha mostly said a few times is, is this. Um, talking about the pleasure of jhana, and he said, this, the pleasure of jhana, is a pleasure I will allow myself. This is someone who's, you know, talks about the middle way in terms of renunciation and senses, but basically relative to most of us, he's pretty extreme renunciate. This extreme renunciate, this, this is a pleasure I will allow myself. This is a pleasure that should not be feared. This is a pleasure that should be, should be pursued and developed. This is a pleasure that should not be p- feared. This is a pleasure that should be pursued and developed. And when he talks about sense pleasures, uh, he talks about them as a, a pit of vipers, a pit of, you know, upward, you know, those elephant traps, old hunter-gatherers, they've got these like big wooden stakes, you know, and the elephant is supposed to, the mammoth is supposed to fall in, and you know, that, that's the sort of image he gives for sense pleasures. It looks like a nice piece of grass or whatever it is there, and actually it's a, so he talks about the jhana in that way, this sh- not to be feared, sh- this is a pleasure, I will allow myself this pleasure, should be pursued and developed, and he talks about sense pleasures, there's a whole list of like pretty, uh, pretty extreme uh, negative uh, similes for sense pleasures. Is, is it, or was it, the case that some, somewhere along the line that modern Dharma teachings have kind of reversed that? Reversed the Buddhist teachings in relation to these kinds of, of pleasures, sense pleasure and jhanic pleasure, and reversed the Buddha's concerns regarding sense pleasure, jhanic pleasure, and, and attachment to either. I find that really interesting. Um, I mean, historically and psychologically and how, how that uh, may have evolved and why that may have evolved. And it may be changing. I, I mean, it's definitely changing, no question. Um, it's changing. Um, but the Buddha's pretty clear about this. Uh, um, Again, I don't know if anyone is still unsure when it, when the PT, for example, feels very sexual or it feels like orgasmic. But again, just to remind you, and, and is that okay? And surely, you know, it's a bit much or it can't be right. Um, just to remind you again of the Buddha's words that we've heard before, um, describing the jhana, PT, sukha, um, whole body pervaded, no spot, un- with leaving no spot untouched. So what he does not say is the whole body pervaded except below the waist and <laughs> k- kind of above the middle of the thigh. Um, he says whole body. So I think, again, this is one of these things. It's very easy. It's changing now. But back, you know, X number of years, it was really quite a pervasive thing about this. Oh, you, you, you know, you really shouldn't mess with the jars. There's a real danger that you'll get attached. And again, this encourage. Can we bring a little intelligence to this, a little questioning. I mean, it seems to me that there's three kinds of attachment that, I, that are potential in, in jhanas, in, w- with jhanas. So one is attachment to the pleasure. That would be the, the most obvious one that people would think of, that you're going to get attached to the pleasure. So after, I don't know how many years I've been teaching, um, four, 
16, 17 years, something like that. Um, I, I honestly struggle to remember one person, one person who had actual, uh, experienced an actual jhana, um, let's say more than 10 times, who was attached to the pleasure there. I mean, maybe other people are encountering that sort of thing a lot, but I, I'm not. I don't, I don't think it's a problem for Westerners. For, um, I just wonder what would that attachment look like? This someone who's attached to, to like what? There's like a basement, a guy house, where it's a bit like an opium den, and these <laughs> old yogis are there just like <laughs> in, in the dark and getting old and not doing their work. And I, what, what, do you, what do we actually think it would look like? Maybe it's like, well, what I think it would look like is then this person who's attached to the jhana, they're unwilling to um, explore or investigate the difficult. Um, it's, it's, I think it's extremely rare. I've, I've never encountered it. I really, really sit here struggling to think, okay, is there anyone I can think of? Um, I just can't. After about 10 times of a Jhana, you're not going to be attached to the pleasure in, in any way that's any, or let's say you're not going to be attached to the pleasure in any kind of problematic way. I can't, I just can't see that. Um, what I do see, and what we might recognize in ourselves much more commonly, is uh, an attachment to um, looking at, obsessing with, prioritizing, attending to the difficult. And we mentioned this before, and sometimes that's just a psychological tendency, sometimes it's a cultural tendency, some ex sometimes it's a dharmically trained tendency. So when I have the option of giving equal attention or attention an equal number of times to the pleasant, I find that I can't. I'm so trained. Immediately there's a contraction in the body, immediately there's some dukkha, the mind goes there. And that's great, that willingness is great, but if it's not balanced with an equal freedom and willingness the other side, there's actually actually, effectively, an attachment. And sometimes that attachment is ideological, because a person thinks, well, this is where the real stuff is. And what's happening in a jhana is you're actually um, suppressing that or, or hiding it. But that's the, what, what's dukkha is what's real. A jhana is a fabrication. A jhana is a kind of construction or irreality, or you're stepping out of, out of touch, hiding from the real stuff. This is, again, we talk about how common attachments are and how entrenched attachments are. That can be extremely common and extremely entrenched. So sometimes as a teacher over the years, I have to be really, really delicate and careful how, how I bring that sort of point up and, and, and what, I, what I say to people and how, how, I, might, how I might say it. Um, or, so it could be an ideological attachment, it could just be a habitual. It's just habitual, again, just tendency of personality, tendency of culture, upbringing, or tendency of dharma practice. <coughs> and in a way then, practicing the jhanas and doing that wholeheartedly and being open-minded will actually remedy that opposite attachment, which, people, uh, which doesn't even occur to people that it might be an attachment because I'm practicing it. Let's not, not buy into that view. Let's not get sucked into the difficult. Let's go here. And I want to keep them both open and both, I'm really f 
able to do both, I'm really free to do both. That's where we want to get to, range, possibility. <coughs> second, uh, what seems to me a second way of getting attached to the jhanas is, is to get all like, look at me, what I can do. Uh, I can reach this or that jhana. And there's a kind of grandiosity of self-view. Uh, again, I would say, let's say after 20 times of a certain jhana, it should be really obvious to a person that it, it doesn't, it's kind of, it's not self making it happen. It arises, this jhana, when the conditions are there. When the conditions are there, a jhanic experience, a jhanic perception arises. Um, it depends on the conditions, all kinds of conditions. All kinds. I mentioned that monk. The Buddha also says at a certain point depends on uh, the digestion being not too hot, not too cold. So in Asian medicine, they have this idea of digestion being too hot, too cold. I certainly know. Yeah, samadhi is a lot dependent on things like digestion, all kinds of things. Um, energy levels, all, all kinds of factors. One really sees if one is, I it's almost difficult not to recognize, let's say after 20 experiences, that it's dependent on conditions. It's not, it's not something the self can get grandiose and sort of pumped up about. Again, what's actually much more common is a negative self-view in relation to not reaching a jhana. Or, I'm not far enough along yet. I can't. I'm a failure. I bet everyone else is better. I'm going too slowly. And then, and then what can happen is a person thinks, I want to attain this deeper jhana. I want to attain the jhanas or whatever it is. This jhana, that jhana beyond where I am. But actually, the intention is one of achievement for decorating the self-view and, and propping up the self-view um, or uh, addressing a kind of more negative, that's a better way of saying it, of, of wanting to address uh, a negative self-view. If I could just get that, then I'd feel better about myself, get a, get a badge, whatever. And sometimes that intention is not fully conscious. We actually don't quite realize what's in the mix of our intention when it comes to this. We don't what's actually operating is a kind of avoidance of a negative self, a, an intention to avoid a negative self-view. And that can be quite, um, quite subtle and, and operating subtly. So the, even there, the attachment is the opposite of what we tend to think. And this kind of, we tend to think, oh, uh, attached to the self-view and the grandiosity, it looks like this. Actually, no, it's happening in a reverse way and sometimes much more subtly. It's like, why? Y you know, let the jhana give you, give you the deepest things it can give you. And the deepest things are the beauty of that happiness and the way it touches the being and the way it bathes the whole body and the whole chitta. That's a much deeper, more far-reaching, more long-lasting, more impacting gift than it gives me, uh, I have achieved. And I can say to myself, I have achieved X or Y, or tell other people, or I have achieved X or Y. Or when there's a conversation, several people have achieved X or Y, I can also say, yes, I have to, or feel to myself that I have to. Let the jhanas give you the, the deepest gifts that they want to give you, that they can give you. And that also goes back to th what's significant. What are we emphasizing? 
yeah, when we're talking about the happiness. The most, perhaps for me, the most interesting kind of question of attachment um, that might arise from jhana is attachment to view. Okay. Um, so for example, someone opening, let's say, uh, opening up to the sixth jhana and this sort of infinite consciousness and the experience there, uh, just and it gets really brief when the Buddha talks about that, but the experience of an infinite consciousness and it's there and it pervades uh, the cosmos or it's a realm, almost like uh, a transcendent realm, it's more accurate, um, but it can be felt both ways, we'll talk about it. It's possible then that someone opening to that experience says, huh, this is ultimately true. Or this is what they're talking about. Um, this is the cosmic consciousness. This is whatever. And, and, and decides that it's ultimately true and gets attached to that as a, as, a, as a view. To be attached to a view means to really believe this view is true. This perception is true. Or the fifth jhana or the seventh jhana or whatever. Uh, Again here, there's something opposite because I would say um, attachment to that kind of view, let's say this cosmic consciousness, this infinite awareness, this vast awareness being the ultimate reality, the eternal backdrop of all things, the source of all things, etc., the nature of everything, it is emptiness, it is etc., etc. That kind of view, it's much more likely to get in, someone's much more likely to get stuck in that view and believe it's the end and the ultimate truth when one hasn't done jhanas five, six, seven, eight. So it's the, it's the opposite. It's exactly A, having the map of, for example, something that goes beyond this uh, quasi-sixth jhana state of infinite consciousness. Because once you get to the seventh jhana or the eighth jhana, you see, oh, that's a fabricated state. It's only a stage. Um, so it's actually the jhanas that help us wean off a view to this or that as the ultimate truth. It's, again, the concern, uh, rather the jhanas are rather a remedy for certain attachments rather than uh, a concern, I would say. That kind of view of a vast awareness being ultimate real, ultimately real, cosmic consciousness, awareness being the nature of things, that awareness being eternal and etc., unruffled, that being the nature of awareness, all that. And that's much more likely to arise from sort of standard insight meditation practice with a lot of practice. It's a very common experience. It's also very common in other um, spiritual traditions. It's, it's actually really, really common. But if we can go beyond that kind of experience, and we have the map, and it, and it places it, we begin, hopefully, to to experience something beyond it. We can't be ultimate. I've gone beyond it, and we begin to understand its context. So, what what is that exactly? How did that how did that experience this vast, eternal seeming awareness, cosmic consciousness, whatever it is? How did it arise? How did it dependently arise as a perception? And we understand its con context. So this understanding it dependently arising, dependently ceasing, it's, not, it's more than saying we, we see that it's impermanent as a view. Because a person can go in and out of the vastness of awareness or the cosmic consciousness or whatever many times and think, yeah, my experience of it is impermanent, but it's not impermanent. 
that's really common. It's eternal. It's just there and unchanging and radiant forever and serene and untouched forever and it embraces everything and it permeates everything. There's different variations. Suppose, yeah, I realize my experience of it is impermanent. I can either accept my, that my experience of it is impermanent and will go in and out, or I can just work towards making it more and more, more and more of the time I'm hanging out there. But that's not what I mean by understanding its dependent arising and dependent cessation. What I mean by understanding its dependent arising and dependent cessation is how does this perception arise and how does it cease? Not that it arises and ceases, but how? It's dependent on a certain amount of unfabricating. And if I unfabricate more, it goes beyond it. It's a different thing than just, yeah, it's impermanent. Or my experience of it is impermanent. So hopefully if we have the right, again, the right context for what we're doing in the whole of the Dharma, what we're, how the, what we're doing in the whole of jhana practice fits into that, this kind of attachment um, uh, doesn't arise. Or, or we can get beyond it, put it that way. The more common danger here is attachment to uh, what the Buddha would call wrong view or a misunderstanding or a limited and limiting view of emptiness, of the nature of awareness. So if I think that's the ultimate nature of awareness, it's not ultimate. It's a, it's a perception. It's a relative perception. It's incredibly useful, incredibly healing and valuable and liberating to a certain extent. Is it ultimate? No. How, how, do, how am I going to find out that it's not ultimate? Limited or misunderstanding, wrong view about what Nibbana is and all this stuff. So the, the shoe is ra- rather on the other foot, I think, in terms of attachment and jhana. They're actually very powerful in terms of weaning us off um, what can be um, really difficult kinds of attachment to sense pleasures um, and in this case to certain uh, spiritual views. And this one, that, that kind of thing that I've just described, I, I mean, I said I couldn't really think of anyone who'd got attached to pleasure, anyone that I'd encountered as a teacher or I'd her- heard uh, talked to over however many years of teaching, meeting a lot of people, couldn't think of anyone. But I think in the first six months of teaching, how many people I encountered who it seemed to me were actually pretty entrenched in that, some version of that vast awareness and that's ultimate, etc. I lost count easily in the first six months. It's so common. And it can get very, very entrenched. So, so there's people who are there in that kind of view for really decades and, th- and they'll never get out of it. Um, Sometimes the language that goes with it is very free and easy. It's very like, well, there's awa- awareness is ultimately there. I don't have to do anything. It's just there. Whatever happens, whether I'm aware or not, it's there. And everything's kind of equal within that. And so it can sound very easy, and the person seems unattached, and it's all very free. And maybe even goes with the viewer, there's no need to meditate because this is just there all the time. And actually all that, all that is hiding a... a a really quite entrenched view uh, that's very, very difficult to, to budge. But one of the ways of going beyond it is actually with, with the jhanas and with the jhana map and actually actually just putting things in their context, as I said, understanding their dependent rising and dependent fading and understanding the whole process and then having uh, 
this context and a whole different relation with with all these um, beautiful and actually really valuable mystical openings and their relationship with truth and therefore with liberation. Okay, so I think that's all I wanted to say today. Um, Someone left me out. Nicole, was this a note for now or uh, just... No? Okay, so I'll look at it later. Yeah, okay. So, um... Should we take a couple of questions or should we just leave it enough for now? Um, Let's just let's just sit quietly. I think that's enough. Yeah. everybody and um, time for tea <coughs> thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate